So Matthew chapter 5 is where we are going to be. If you uh, have uh, your Bible with you, you want to turn to Matthew 5. If not, if you're a child of technology and you've got your idle phone or your Satan song, feel free to turn that uh, to Matthew 5 as well. If you are the paper person like me and you want a Bible, there are some located in the seat pockets in front of you, so feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible at all, congratulations, you now have a Bible. Take that thing home with you. That's yours. So as we make our way to Matthew 5, where we were at last week, I uh, let you know that Matthew 5-7 through is the first of five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. These are five teachings that Jesus goes through. And this one is very famously called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is there in that Galilee region. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because He gives it from a mountainside along the Sea of Galilee. What we also have looked at is that the teaching of Jesus uh, was really one of the main emphases of his ministry. He was first a teacher and then a preacher. In fact, many of his disciples would call him rabbi. That's the Hebrew word for a teacher, rabboni. And so he was a teacher and a preacher. He was also a healer. But all these things began with his teaching ministry. And so the question was, who is he teaching? And so we see Jesus He begins by teaching at the start of chapter 5 to his disciples. They were the first ones that came to him. And this is where he gave them verses 1-12 through we looked at, the Beatitudes. And so as he begins with his disciples, though, no doubt the crowds then began to gather. Wherever Jesus went, the crowds began to gather around him. And so we see two specific groups that he's uh, teaching to today, and that is first the unbeliever. And the point of what Jesus is going to teach to the unbeliever, it's to drive them towards Christ. What we're going to look at today, he's going to actually take the law and and what we see in the Old Testament, he's actually going to turn it up a notch. If you think the law is difficult, this is going to be even harder for you to do. But he's doing that for a very specific reason, to prove to them that they cannot do the law. They cannot perform it. They can't adhere to it. So they must have a Savior. And so the point for the unbeliever is to drive them towards Christ. For the believer, the point is to direct us how to live in the body of Christ. How we are to live, to interact. And what Jesus went through in these first 12 verses, it's you are to interact and to act in the body of Christ in blessings. You're actually called to be blessed. I don't know if any of you uh, feel that that's an awesome thing or not, but I think that's awesome. To be called is awesome, but then to be called into blessings, this is wonderful. And so when he goes through these first 12 verses, he says, blessed is the man. And we talked about this. That means, oh, how happy. If you want to live a happy life, the key to this is to go through these blessings and progressively work through them one by one. They're like a domino. They, they, they clip off one at a time. And what we find is we actually get the opportunity to exchange our sin nature. This is the beautiful part for a new nature, a spiritual nature, because the law cannot be satisfied with our flesh. It must be adhered to in the Spirit. And so this is what Jesus is going to emphasize in His teaching, that what the law could only prove, that is, we are a sinner. We are are destined for hell. That's where we're we're going. But here's the the wonderful blessing in all this, is that we don't have to be tied to that any longer. We can instead be led by the Spirit, saved by faith, through the grace of Jesus Christ. So pick up with me, if you would, in verse 13. And we're going to read this first series of verses, and we'll work our way down through this. He starts by saying, You are the salt of the earth, 
But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so what Jesus starts with is he gives us metaphors. Three metaphors, in fact. He, he gives us salt and light and a city. And what we find in these three metaphors are all different uh, characteristics. Uh, salt, for example, it, it does three things. Uh, it, it preserves, it purifies, and it seasons. It was also, in this Roman age and culture, used as currency. It was very valuable. If you've ever heard the phrase, he's not worth his salt, that's actually where this comes from. They would use salt as a way to pay for things. But as salt preserves, we, we know and understand that they don't have a refrigeration. And so how are they going to stop uh, meat from rotting? They're going to have to use salt as a way to preserve things. And then it also purifies. If you've ever heard the phrase, a little bit of salt in the wound, that's because it can actually take infection out. So it was used as a way to purify. And then lastly, to season. Right? Uh, anybody's ever tried to eat your veggies with no salt? Or some eggs with no salt, you got to get the salt shaker out, right? Even if you got some high blood pressure, like a little bit of salt isn't going to hurt me. Why? Because it seasons, it adds flavor. And as we look in our Christian life, what we are called to do as the body of Christ, we are called to be salt. We are called to be a preservative. No doubt the world all around us is rotting at a rapid pace, but we are not to stand around and point a finger and go, you're rotten, right? Instead, we are called to be a preservative we're called to actually bring life to extend life to others we're also called to purify we are in the world and not of the world so if the world is to have any purity whatsoever it's to come from the church we are called to be salt and then lastly we are called to add flavor if any of you ever grew up in traditional church you, were, you probably heard something like this. When you walk in through the doors, you've heard people singing and praising, and it sounded like, How great thou art, then sings my heart. Does that sound like life to anybody? We're talking about the Word of God. This should be exciting. It should have some flavor to it. And so Jesus calls us to be salt to be flavor, to be excitement. Not salty language. Let's, let's take a step back there. But to be flavorful. Secondly, light. Right, Light illuminates. It warms. It exposes. And so we love light when we're fumbling around in the morning trying to find our shoes. Right, Light illuminates. Wonderful. It, it warms us. We were thankful for, for light whenever it was cold just the last week. This week, we're thinking it's a little hot. But... but Light warms and it provides life, but it also exposes. It shows things that are in the deep, dark places. Lots of times we don't want it to expose those things, and yet uh, what light does is it penetrates even the darkest of crevices. And then lastly, he calls us to be a city. And now a city is one that we think of government and we think of order. And so as we examine this in our Christian life, we are to be salt, we are to be light we are to be a city we are to have order within our lives and so when we when we think about the world though 
What is the world? The world is dirty. It is, it is dying. It is dark and it is disorderly. But none of this should surprise us because they're the world. They don't have the salt and the light unless we bring it to the occasion. And so as a church, we have a job. We are to be the salt and the life. We're the ones to bring a order to the world around us. But we cannot do it if we are hidden. This is what Jesus is trying to say. That the, we shouldn't be shocked at the darkness that's around us. We should understand they're acting as their nature tells them to act. But we are called to be light. Now light, uh, he also points out, it is to give glory to your Father in heaven. And that's important to note. Because what we find is even in the life of Jesus, as He's able to do these wonderful miracles, if you study through them, He is always consistently giving glory to the Father. Now this is God in the flesh, so if He's not too good to always give glory to the Father, then you and I are not too good to do that either. So then continuing on in verse 17, what we see is, do not think that I come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Remember our key verse in Matthew as we go through this is the word fulfilled. It's the key word. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments teaches and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus starts there in verse 17 by referring to the law and the prophets. And what he's talking about is the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. And so the law refers to the law of Moses. That's our first five books in the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch. And so they, they very much revered their law. But then everything after that they call the prophets. And so what Jesus is saying is that I came to fulfill the entire Bible. All of it. Every last bit of it. And I think that's important for us because as we've gone through this church age, what's happened is we have focused uh, solely on the New Testament and we have forgotten about the Old Testament. Jesus, though, did not forget about that. He, he, in fact, said, I came to fulfill this. And so, as we go through the Bible, intentionally and somewhat methodically, maybe you might think, we are going to go through the New and the Old Testament, pulling references from both, because the reality is it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. If you're just getting part of the Bible, you're just going to be a partial Christian. You're not going to get all of it. So, uh, what, what a, a fancier way to say it is Jesus is the Old Testament concealed and then the New Testament revealed. And so what is hidden in the Old Testament is then exposed and revealed to us in the New Testament. So how then, or what ways might we say that He fulfilled the law? And so looking at three different ways that He was the, the fulfillment of the law, it's first by teaching it. And He didn't just uh, teach it you know, like any of the other teachers who all had other teachers that taught them, he taught with authority. And authority, what they're saying is he taught in a way that was not from man. So as uh, if I would have learned from one of their famous Hebrew teachers, a guy like Gamaliel, a guy that taught the Apostle Paul, Paul's style would have been very much like Gamaliel's style. 
Yet for Jesus, his style was like nobody had ever seen. And so when they saw him teach, they said, man, he teaches with authority. Uh, Also, by the way, just as a side note, Jesus taught sitting down. So if any of you are here and you're like, it's a little weird that the pastor is sitting, this is one of the reasons why uh, we sit down as we teach, because Jesus did it. Uh, The other major reason is because uh, it eliminates an uh, us versus them, a me versus you. It's more conversational in the way that we're able to relate to one another. Because the reality is, I'm working through this stuff just like you. I'm trying to figure it out too. So this is the way Jesus would teach with authority. Secondly, he taught by keeping the law. Remember, the law wasn't just the top ten, the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20, but there were 613 different laws in the Hebrew text. Jesus kept all of them. In fact, he even kept the ones from before he had uh, the ability to choose. His mom and dad kept the law for him until he had the opportunity to keep it for himself. Mary and Joseph had him circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, His mother went to the temple on the 40th day for her purification. And so we see he was keeping the law even before he was able to keep the law, and he did it in its entirety. The only person to ever do so. And then lastly, he did it by taking the penalty of it sacrificially. He took our sin upon himself and what uh, the Apostle Paul says it way better than what I'm going to say it. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, this is what uh, Paul writes to the church in that Galatia region. He says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse of the law, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So in other words, if you don't keep all the law, you fall under the curse of the law. You're a sinner. You're headed for the place that sinners are headed to. Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. So Paul's saying, look, it's obvious none of us can keep this thing. We can't even keep the top ten. For the just shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by faith. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So how did Jesus fulfill the law? Lastly and finally, He took the curse of the law upon Himself for you and for me. Praise the Lord, He did that. Now, what then do we do with the law? This is something we ask about in church regularly. Here's this entire Old Testament. Here's all this here. What in the world am I supposed to do with this? Well, let me just share with you that the law is split up in three different parts. It's it's a ceremonial portion, there's a moral portion, and then there's a civil portion. How are you to live in daily life. Remember, Jesus brought or God brought this nation out of Egypt. They didn't know how to live. They didn't know how to be organized. They were slaves in Egypt. And there weren't just a few of them, there were 2 million of them. So you can imagine the job Moses has to get these folks organized. And so God gives them a ceremonial, a moral, and a civil law. The ceremonial portion what we see in the life of Jesus is that he fulfilled it in part in his first coming, in totality in his Second coming. What I mean by that is uh, different ceremonies. For example, their feasts. We've talked about Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was the Passover Lamb. So he fulfilled 
the Passover requirements for the Passover lamb to take away the sins of the people so that they would not suffer death. He did this, by the way, being crucified on Passover. He was literally the Passover lamb. They tried not to crucify him on Passover, but the people would have none of it because God's word is always going to be fulfilled. He then was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the body symbolizing the bread. He was buried on that day and then resurrected during the Feast of First Fruits. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so we see one at a time, he's slowly clipping off all of these feasts and festivals that they thought were such a big part of their tradition, and they were, but what God called them in Leviticus 23 were holy convocations. That means holy practices. They were practicing for the real event. Right? No one goes to a wedding rehearsal and gets excited about the rehearsal and then doesn't come to the actual wedding. So what Jesus was in His first coming in these spring feasts is He was the wedding. The wedding was to take place. And then lastly, during the Feast of Pentecost, what happened to all of the disciples as, as they're gathered there in the upper room? Uh, the Holy Spirit came down upon them. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. And so we see the fulfillment of these spring feasts from Leviticus 23 all taking place in the first coming of Christ. And so just a little tidbit, we don't have time to get into it, but if Jesus fulfilled the spring feast on his first coming, imagine what he's going to do in his second coming, probably fulfill the fall feasts, which are the feast of trumpets as he comes as the trump sounds, the feast of uh, tabernacles where the, the uh, children celebrate the sacrifice of the Father. And so we'll get into that some other time. All that to say what the Apostle Paul got at to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. This is what Paul says. He says, So let no one judge you in food or drink in regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The substance of all these festivals and feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, all this pointed back to Jesus. And his point was, this, these were a shadow so no one would get excited and celebrate a shadow when they had the real thing there. I'd be really disappointed last summer when I came back from Zambia after not seeing my family for 10 days if when I walked down the driveway, they jumped on my shadow and started hugging and kissing it. It'd be rather disappointing for me. I want them to, to hug me. I'm here. That's what Paul is writing about Jesus. So the, ceremon the, the ceremonial portion has been fulfilled. We're not to adhere to that. We're not bound to that. If you want to celebrate these feasts, they're wonderful. They're a lot of fun, but they speak of Jesus. And so the moral and the civil portion are what uh, we are to, to follow, though. And what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, is this. Speaking of the law. He says, For what the law could not do, in, it, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. And so how on earth are we even going to fulfill the moral portion of the law? What Paul's saying is we are to fulfill it in Spirit which is precisely what Jesus is going to teach 
over these next several verses. He's going to give us six different examples of this. So continue to hang with me as we look at these examples. He's going to begin with a light topic, uh, and that is murder. In verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First reconcile with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on your way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you will be thrown in prison. Verse 26, Assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid every last penny. And so Jesus starts this, and we're going to see him repeat this. He starts by saying, you have heard. He's referring back to the law. This one is one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You've heard not to murder. We can all agree it's a bad idea to go around murdering people. That one seems to make sense. But Jesus takes and turns this inwardly, and he looks at how you actually act in the inward man. And he says, if any of you say, Raka, and what that means is uh, calls your brother empty head. Hey, you're an airhead. You're an idiot, a moron. If you think these things or you say these things, he's saying you have, in fact, committed murder in your heart. Now, does this mean that every one of us needs to go to every single person that we've ever thought anything ill of and apologize to them systematically? I would tell you, you would spend probably from now until the end of your life trying to figure out all the people you've thought that about. Right? including all those you've thought that about in traffic. It's going to take you a while. So he's not saying that, but instead what he's saying is, uh, when you come to the altar, that's a place of worship. When you come to a place of worship, God will bring people to your mind. Usually, unfortunately, they're people we live with. He brings people to your mind. And what you're going to find is, it's uh, nearly impossible, if not completely impossible, to worship when you are mad. You can't do it. You can go through the motions. You can pretend. You can mutter along with the words. But the reality is when we are angry, what James says is that all wars start in the heart. All wars and all fights begin in the heart. It's a heart problem. And I need to address the problem with my own heart before we come into the place of worship. Next, in verse 25, we see Jesus is talking specifically about legal matters. Now, I will tell you, because being in construction for 15 years, I've been unfortunately involved in legal matters. And every time I have ever won in a, in a court of law, I have lost. <laughs> I've lost. I've either lost money. I never came out ahead. I had to pay the stinking lawyers. I never came out ahead with my time. It takes energy. It is draining. And so what Jesus is saying, he's looking ahead into our lives and going, you know what you need to do? Uh, fix this thing before you get into a court of law because it's going to drain you. It's going to zap your energy. And then lastly, he goes uh, to money. And this one hurts because what he's going to say is, look, when it comes to someone wanting to fight with you about money, just let it go. Let it go. 
Because you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be angry. And you're going to be far better off if you just, in the words of Elsa, let it go. Let it go. I'm not going to sing that one for you. Sorry. We have too many Disney movies at our house. So what Paul would tell the Ephesian church is don't let the sun go down on your anger. Fix it quickly. Because these things fester and what happens is bitterness builds up. It grows inside. And then it actually kills us from the inside out. Alright, so enough of that light topic. Uh, Let's move on to one even lighter. And that is uh, adultery. Verse 27. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of those members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Well, there we go. That's easy enough. So what we see is Jesus is, again, he's taking adultery. One of these things, it's a top ten list. He says, have you heard? Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. They would nod their heads. Yes, we've heard this. And we would all agree that adultery is bad. And then he again turns it back inside. And people begin to squirm. Because he says, if any of you has looked upon a woman, has lusted after her, you have in fact committed the actual act. Now, we all understand there are different consequences for things, though. So, Jesus is spiritualizing this. Obviously, uh, thinking about adultery versus committing them, uh, try asking your wife. There's probably far different sets of consequences to these two. But Jesus also knows that men are visual creatures. Women, on the other hand, are more relational. And so a man, he can look and he can lust, but for a woman, she's usually looking upon a relationship and going, boy, I wish... My husband did that. I wish he acted in that way. And so both of these are an issue. Both of these are committing adultery in the heart. And both of these are why I will not watch The Bachelor anymore. I'm tired of it, right? Years ago, Angela convinced me to watch The Bachelor. And and the truth of it is, this is all for you ladies so you can look upon relationships that are completely impossible for us. And I would tell her how much I hated this show. And then three episodes in, I'm telling her, why is she dating him? He's not right for her at all. Can't you see? So The Bachelor, this is why this is evil. Okay, moving off The Bachelor. What we realize also is that Jesus is trying to be intentionally dramatic to drive home a point. He's not telling you to go pluck out your eye or to cut off your hand and to walk around like a bunch of pirates. That's ridiculous. He's doing this for, uh, for, for, for effect to the people so that they would understand this is how serious this is. Because the reality is, for guys, even if you plucked out both of our eyes, we still have our mind that works. We don't need eyes to imagine. So the issue really lies within our mind. And, and this also tells us that, look, what you allow into your minds, that stuff sticks. It sticks for a long time. We can pray and pray, and, and, and over time, it is purified, and these things do get flushed out, but it takes a while. And amazingly, these things pop back into our head. We've noticed this probably with music, right? Rap music, I've noticed, it, it just pops back into my head like immediately. 
I can spout the lyrics off. This is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there, I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. Like that. I mean, just instantly, this stuff sticks in our head. And so be careful at what we look at, what we allow in there. This is the point he's trying to drive home. Now then to continue on in verse 31, to divorce. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So this topic of divorce Jesus brings up from the law, again, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And what Moses says there, I'll actually go there and read this section of Scripture. Oh, lost my note. That's going to be hard to find later. What Moses is actually talking about, well, never mind. I'll just tell you what Moses is actually talking about. He says, for any uncleanness, a man can divorce his wife. And so uncleanness, he was talking about specifically in the situation of if you are in a marriage relationship, so you guys get married and you discover, I don't think I need to go into all the details how you discover it, but you discover your wife was not a virgin like you thought she was. That's considered an uncleanness. Big surprise to you, it's an uncleanness, and therefore you can issue her a certificate of divorce. Now, what had happened by the time of uh, Jesus' day is that they had begun to interpret the law. They had begun to manipulate the law. And men, shocker, shocker here, men had manipulated the law into their own favor. And they began to call all sorts of things uncleanness. Honey, you burnt the toast. Honey, you know I don't like my eggs like that. Uh, honey, the girl I work with, uh, she's skinnier and prettier than you, therefore you are unclean. I'm going to have to issue you according to the law of Moses, and issue a certificate of divorce. And so what we find, the bigger issue here, yes, uh, divorce and breaking up of families is a problem, but the real issue that Jesus is trying to drive at is men manipulating the Word of God. And do you understand that the Word of God is to be taken incredibly seriously and not to be manipulated or toyed around with or played with? In fact, what... Uh, David would write in Psalm 138 is that he views the Word of God even higher than his own name. So if he's going to treat the Word of God higher than his name, then we should treat the Word of God in a similar way and not use it and interpret, interpolate it and manipulate it for our own benefit. And so what Jesus is really trying to do is he's trying to drill down and hit the reset button on this nation so they would understand, look, you need to stop manipulating and changing the Word of God. Let's call sin what it is, and then let's move from there. Now keep in mind, too, when we talk about this stuff, these are sensitive topics that Jesus loves all these people he's talking to. He's come to save all of these people. He's trying to bring that around for us to understand. Then in verse 33, he's going to talk about oaths. He says, again, you have heard, it was said to those of old, you, cannot, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is the God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. 
And in my case, I can't even get it to grow. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so he's going to go on to address taking of oaths. This is from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. And what we see is, is the real thing Jesus is trying to get at is their very name is Israel. Israel means ruled by God. Therefore, God, Yahweh, is actually in their name. So if you say yes, or if you make a promise, you are in effect promising in God's name because they were from Israel. And we bring this to our modern day, we are called Christians. We literally have the name of Christ in our name. We take his name with us. So therefore, if I say yes to something or no to something, I should not have to say, I swear, I promise. My yes should be yes. My no should be no. Why? Because I take Christ's name with me everywhere I go into every situation. This is what he's trying to communicate with this statement. Now, continuing on in verse 38, and you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him also have your cloak. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and from him who turns to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so now he's going to talk about uh, our anger and justice. Now, the Old Testament does in fact say in Exodus 21, 24, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, we have used that in our modern day vernacular to change that to, to uh, don't get mad, get even. That's at least what we said for me as a young man growing up. And the way we would oftentimes interpolate that, at least on the football field, was if you hit me, I'm going to wait until an opportune time to track you down, usually on a punt return, wait till you're not looking, and I'm going to completely obliterate you. I'm going to hit you as hard as I possibly can, and then we would call that justice. See, you just got what you had coming to you. I'm not going to get mad, I'm going to get even. Now, the reason, though, behind God writing this in the law was to give them a set of parameters to keep fairness intact. Because what he knows about us and our nature is this, that if you knock one of my teeth out because you smack me in the face, I'm going to knock all your teeth out. I'm going to take a little bit more than what you took from me. So what God was trying to do with the law was actually to reel people in, to help them understand morally, to have a sense of justice and responsibility, to keep them fair, because he knows we are always looking to take that extra pound of flesh. Now Jesus takes and he turns it, and he internalizes it. And what we find, and the question that often gets asked, is it seems like Jesus wants me to be a doormat. And the answer to that is, probably not very popular, yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. He's called us to be doormats. Now, was Jesus a doormat? Then is usually the next question. And I would tell you, looking through the Gospels, looking at the life of Christ, he was very much a doormat. He allowed people to abuse him. When we think about his arrest there in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
The Roman soldiers come, they arrest him illegally, without cause, without right. And what happens? Peter pulls out the sword. And obviously he wasn't very good with the sword, probably about like me with a gun. He takes off Malchus's ear instead of his head. I think he was aiming for a little more than the ear. He caught the ear. And so Jesus picks the ear up. And you can imagine this scene, right? There's, it couldn't have been without blood. It had to be weird. Like, dude, you're picking up his ear. That's weird. And he sticks it back on the side of his head. Like, like only in the Bible. <clears throat> so here's Jesus. And he, what, what's he tell Peter? He says, Peter, don't you know that with one word, an entire legion of angels would descend down upon this place? Now remember, in the day of Hezekiah, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Can you imagine what a legion, 10,000s of angels, would have done to this Roman army? They would have wiped them out, except Jesus allowed himself to be a doormat. Perfectly and completely meek. Remember, meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. The very power of God harnessed into a man and then keeping himself in complete and total control. So after that light note, let's look at verse 43. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good, and he sends rain to the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not the tax collectors do the same. Verse 47, and if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now what we find in verse 43, Jesus says, Have you not heard? And he begins by saying, You shall love your neighbor. And then he continues on, But hate your enemy. And what you'd find, if I hadn't lost my sticky note in Leviticus, in Leviticus uh, 19, verse 18, he says, you shall love your enemy. This is what God tells them, or you shall love your neighbor. He does not say in the law, you shall hate your enemy. It's actually not mentioned. So again, going back to people manipulating the word of God, it had become a popular saying of the day. You shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And so Jesus brings this up to talk to them about their modern day vernacular. And then he goes on to tell them what they should do with their enemies, and he gives them two things. First, he says you should bless them. Well, that'll be easy enough. So as people hurt you, as they're your enemy, you should uh, bless them or bless you. Go on your way. God bless you. And then the second piece is you should pray for them. Now, this one is a little more difficult. But my question to you is, have you ever tried it? Have you ever tried to pray for your enemy? And I don't mean just throw a prayer out there like maybe David did a few times in the Psalms, like, Lord, knock their teeth in. Lord, smite down my enemy. No, I'm talking about a real deal. Get on your knees and pray for your enemy. And then I would encourage you, if you have done it once, try it for seven straight days. Just give it a try. See what God would do with it. And I will promise you, if you will pray for your enemy, 
truly and from the heart for seven straight days that I can't guarantee you they will change. But I can guarantee you, you will. You cannot consistently pray for people who hurt you in your lives and something inside you not change towards them. When the boys were in first grade in Farmington, they were going to school and a little boy named Colton would come along and he would punch them and hit them in class. Call them names, treat them terribly. And they would come home day in and day out and tell us, hey, Colton hit me, Colton did this, Colton did that. And now, look, I'm from Clark County. I've told you how I grew up. If you can't get mad, get even. I'm ready to go whoop somebody. I'm going to go whoop a teacher, whoop a parent. I'll even whoop a kid. It'll be okay. I'll say, Jesus, forgive me. It'll be fine. This is how I'm thinking in my heart. Like, I'm ready to go defend my children. And instead, what the boy said is, Dad, can we pray for Colton? Like, I'm supposed to say that. That's my job. Pastor. I'm supposed to pray for people. And so what we did is instead of going and, and approaching the teacher, or the, uh, we did let the teacher know there was some violence going on, but instead of lighting up a mom and a dad, instead we prayed for this little guy. And what happened is my heart changed, amazingly enough. And the little guy for a while continued to be violent. And then uh, come the summertime, so the school year ends, and we sign the boys up for baseball. And I remember we're walking out to the baseball diamond, and, and they've got their, you know, they're looking so cute in their uniforms, and they've got their cleats on, and they can barely walk because they can barely walk anyway. They're like little baby giraffes, and then you put cleats on them. It's even funnier. Uh, so they're walking up there, and this kid comes running across the field yelling at him. And he comes running towards him, and he gives him a hug. And I said, Dad, I want you to meet my friend Colton. I'm like, what? Here comes Colton's mom. They're playing his team the first day of baseball. Here comes Colton's mom up. She's helping coach their team. And she's got tears in her eyes. And she says, Colton tells me all the time about his friends, Joel and Jarrett, how much he loves them. This is the little twerp that was picking on them. And she said, thank you so much for them being good friends to him. It's been really hard since his dad's been in jail. There was no dad for me to whip. <laughs> Man's in jail. And he probably could have whooped me. So praise the Lord he wasn't out of jail. Right? So, so here's the thing about prayer. Is that sometimes they change. They're not always Colton stories. But all the time, all the time, we change. I love this quote, and this isn't from a Christian radio guy. This is from a sports talk guy. But occasionally we can draw things uh, in from even the sports talk world. But uh, Colin Cowherd would say this. He said, we are so busy trying to be right that we fail to get it right. That so often in our lives, we are so busy trying to be right, to defend our rights, to defend our position to defend to defend to defend that we fail to get it right and what jesus is saying here is that for your enemy to love them he's not saying for your friend for someone you can kind of sort of stand he's saying for someone that you previously hated you need to love them 
And this is only possible supernaturally. I want you to understand, this is not the reason this wars in our flesh and we get that anxiety and that feeling builds up. It's because it's not possible in the flesh. No way, no how. And with a country that is divided now more than ever before, we've got over here and we've got over there. Notice with me, he didn't say only love white, black, purple, Democrat, Republican, blue, red. He said love your enemy and he said love them all. All of them. That's how we are to actually interact. And it's through this that people will know we are different. That we are changed. One last story, and I promise I'm done. But just a few months before we left, a good friend of mine, uh, his name's Dave, he shared his testimony on a Wednesday night. And it was one of those blow-your-hair-back kind of testimonies. I mean, it was like, it was drugs, and it was alcohol, and it was anger, and it was, you know, death, and then it was rock and roll, and then it was more drugs and more rock and roll. And you're like, whoa, man, this was some kind of testimony. He got to the point to where he could not feel. He couldn't feel anymore. He had a friend that died and he couldn't even cry. He could not feel. And you know what happened to my friend Dave? Jesus. Jesus changed him from the inside out. From this crazy life to then he could feel again from the inside out. And so I share that to say that I've lived on this earth for 41 years through seven presidents, some good, some bad, some this way, some that, but never a single stinking one of them has ever changed a man from the inside out. Never seen that happen. Never one time has it taken place. But we, as the hope, as the light, as the salt of the church, we get to serve the king of kings that can change people from the inside out like my friend Dave. That's who I'm going to serve. That's who I'm going to put my hope in and my faith in time and time again because we continually take our eye off the ball. And it's only through Him, and it's only in this way that verse 48 can take place, that therefore we shall be made perfect just as our Father in heaven is perfect. We are far from perfect. I think we can all nod and admit that one. Far from perfect. And yet, do you realize, as a Son of the living God, when He looks upon you, He doesn't actually see you. He sees the blood of Jesus covering you, atoning for you. And when He sees that, He goes, oh man, that's one of mine. Perfect. 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 That's the kind of thing we have to get excited about as we leave out of here. And so, Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to reflect, to really let these words settle in and sink in, Lord. Thank you for being a king of kings and not a president of presidents. We are not looking to elect and re-elect you, Lord. You are God above all of this. You reign on the righteous and the unrighteous, on the just and the unjust. Praise you, Father, for that. Lord, I pray as we continue on out of here through this week that we would be salt and light. There is something attractive about light. There is something attractive about the warmth to a world that is cold and dying. 
Lord Jesus, help us to be that. Help us too with a smile on our face to be able to be in the world and not of it. To be in the water, but the water doesn't get in us lest we sink. Lord, I pray for that for everybody gathered here. I pray for that uh, for those watching online. Lord, I pray that for myself and my family. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.